0: From an incredibly stormy Edinburgh, you're listening to the Religious Studies Project with Christopher Carter and David Robertson. David, who's coming up this
1: week? Uh, The interview this week is with some junior scholar, um, some young up-and-coming guy called uh, David Robertson. I think he's at Edinburgh, but I'm not sure. Uh Um, Anyway, so this is an interview with him about his new book or something. Uh, Doesn't really sound very interesting. Area 51,
0: Ancient Aliens, Endemic Child Abuse at the BBC, Reptilians, Watergate, 9-11, Renegade Preachers Rising from the Dead, The Grassy Knoll, The Da Vinci Code, Hydra, Climate Change, The Moon Landings, Satanic Ritual Abuse, The X-Files. The popular imagination is rife with stories of secret plans and cover-ups, agencies working behind the scenes, grand plans carried out without the knowledge of the unsuspecting masses, lies, deceit, and an elect few who know the truth. Sometimes, stories which at one time seemed far-fetched receive widespread acceptance and become the hegemonically accepted norm. At others, they remain the preserve of relatively small groups of nutters and become designated as conspiracy theories by those who have the power to do so. What might this popular discursive trope be able to tell us about contemporary Western society? How might scholars go about studying it, particularly when they themselves are frequently implicated as working against the truth by insiders? And what might all of this have to do with the contemporary academic study of religion? To discuss this tantalizing subject, we're joined today by a scholar who's no stranger to regular listeners of the Religious Studies Project, Dr. David Robertson. David is co-editor-in-chief of the Religious Studies Project, a committee member of the British Association for the Study of Religions, and co-editor of the recently relaunched journal Implicit Religion. He teaches at the University of Edinburgh and has published widely on new religions, millennialism, conspiracy theories, and critical theory. He recently guest-edited a special issue of Nova Religio and is the co-editor of Afterworld Religions, Reconstructing Religious Studies. And today, we're largely going to be discussing his monograph, UFOs, Conspiracy Theories and the New Age, Millennial Conspiracism, published by Bloomsbury in early 2016. So first off, David, welcome to the Religious Studies Project.
1: Well, thanks for inviting me, Chris. It's great to finally be here. I'm a, I'm a big fan.
0: This is going to be incredibly odd for us listeners. as is. Um, I'm getting a
1: taste of my own
0: medicine. It's fantastic. Um so, David, it was wonderful to be able to read your book, and particularly having gotten to know you pretty well over the last five years, I've been part of your journey, Um and I've heard a lot of the names and ideas um gradually being dripped out in pub chats and conference presentations, but the listener hasn't had that uh, experience, so just wondering, how did you get interested in this whole topic? Um it, It's something that's been
1: bubbling for quite a while for you. The, the idea of writing about this kind of stuff occurred to me, Um I was lucky enough to take Steve Sutcliffe's uh course on new age religion here in Edinburgh um a few years ago. And one of the readings mentioned David Icke. Um, and he was talking about his more sort of early, very sort of new agey work on, you know, the truth vibrations and this kind of stuff. But it rung a bell in my, in my, uh, in my head because I remembered seeing, uh, the famous, um, 1991 interview on Terry Wogan. Yeah. Um, when I was a kid, I must have been 91, so I must have been 16, 15 or 16. Um, and I sort of got interested, uh, and uh, searched out a few of his books again and thought, you know, I, I want to read up about this guy. And mm-hmm. obviously I'd heard of the repti- uh, reptilian stuff as everybody had. Um, so I started reading quite heavily on him and, and I realized nobody was working on this kind of intersection of new age ideas, millennial ideas, um, and conspiracy theories, despite the fact that a, a number of people mentioned it in passing, but nobody would sort of done any sustained work. Um, you know, why do these ideas fit together? It's mm-hmm. not the idea of the new age I was getting from people like Helas or Vuter Hanegraaff mm-hmm. or even Steve Sutcliffe, who were all talking about this um, kind of we're all one, very positive um aquarian kind of idea um so that was that was the main thrust of it
0: yeah and 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 i remember you saying um in the book a number of times that you were maybe quite sort of uncomfortable with the way that ike was treated by wogan and the audience mm-hmm. and the newspapers etc
1: yeah um well yeah I thought either either this guy's mentally ill, you know he's had some sort of a breakdown or he's had some sort of religious awakening you know obviously when I'm fifteen or sixteen, I'm not starting to problematize the difference yeah, yeah. there, but I sort of thought either way round, it's kind of cruel to be you know openly mocking him um which was the memory I had of it and and it was certainly the the situation in the press following it I mean he was brutally mocked for a long, long time. Um, very little sympathy for him at all, um, but I, I've I've been able to to review the episode. I went to the BBC archives and rewatched it, and actually Wogan isn't being as cruel as it seems. I mean, he is is a little bit of playing to the audience, yes. but actually he's kind of warning a colleague that he he says things like you know the we cannot the moral aspects of what you're saying make sense to me, but the problem is you're making these predictions. And what's going to happen when they don't come true? Mm. You know, and that's, and it's after he said that, that the famous line, you know, they're not laughing with you, they're laughing at you comes. He's warning mm. him, you're setting yourself up for a fall here. Mm. Um, so it's quite interesting anyway, but, um, certainly he's still a major figure of fun. And recently there's been a couple of stories in the press where, um, people have sought to discredit, um, people, uh, by connecting them to Ike, like the Green Party, for instance, in a recent election. Exactly. He
0: says, <laughs> As I sit here with my Scottish Green Party bag. Well, indeed, yeah. Um, so cl- yeah, clearly there's, there's a lot going on there in terms of methodological agnosticism, you know, like similar issues when you're studying this sort of thing mm-hmm. that scholars of religion would be facing, prophecy. And we'll come back to this towards the end of the interview. Um But just to press on, uh, we've had this word conspiracy, conspiracy theories um, thrown around Um and it is quite a, a loaded term. Um, but maybe you could just tell us a little bit about you know, what is a conspiracy theory? Where does the term come from? What does it mean? When is something a
1: conspiracy and when is it not? And what's the difference between a conspiracy and a conspiracy theory? Right. Well, it's easy enough to dis- define what a, a conspiracy is. Okay. It's it's people working together covertly for some criminal end. We can define that. Um, but the idea of what a conspiracy theory is, um, it can't simply be any theory that posits a conspiracy. There's some, there's more to it than that. And the clearest example I can give of that is for instance, um, the, uh, 9-11 attacks. Okay. So there's two main theories. One is that, um, uh, Al Qaeda did it. Um, and the other is that the American government in some way did it. Yeah. Um, now both of those are conspiracies. Mm Mm-hmm. But only one is a conspiracy theory,
0: and what's the difference that you know yeah. so, so how, how do
1: what what makes one again is it because one's true and one's not that is the impression that people would like to give mm. it's that one is at the moment considered illegitimate and one is considered official so a conspiracy theory is is something which is against the um norms or you know if, you know, sometimes the official statements of you know, the elected government or whatever. Um, now the interesting thing here is that things can change then. So, for instance, the Watergate hearings or, you know, allegations of pedophilia against particular people have been, have been conspiracy theories for many years. And then, um, it's been found out that they were true or uh, the use of drones in, um, in mm. the Middle East is a very good example of this recently. Now, the interesting thing is that at that point, they cease to be conspiracy theories. Therefore, a conspiracy theory is always by its nature unproven. The moment you prove it, it's no longer a conspiracy theory. So a conspiracy theory is, is uh, it's, its essentially a term which is used to marginalize mm. um, certain narratives. And let's put it that way.
0: Um, So that is connected to why you prefer the term perhaps conspiracism.
1: Yeah. I talk about conspiracism and I actually get that term from Michael Barkin from Mm. um, his uh, 2000, I think it was published in 2001. No, 2005 initially. um, uh, A culture of conspiracy. And he, the idea of conspiracism is that we're not analyzing these particular individual narratives. You know, America did this or aliens did this. The idea is that conspiracism is a worldview built on, um, the, the, the seeing of conspiracies. So, um, a conspiracist assumes that conspiracies are the major motivating factor behind events in the world. In the same way that, um, a Christian sees God as the fundamental motivating factor behind history. Mm. Uh, So that's the idea. It's to take away from analysing the truth or not truth of each of these individual kind of narratives, but rather try and work out how those views work as, uh, you know, those individual narratives work as an overarching kind of worldview. That's the
0: idea. And analysing it discursively then. Yes, indeed. um, And we'll... We'll come back to that later and, you know, listeners can listen to your interview with Kofi von Stuttgart um, to, to get more on Good. your <laughs> uh, discursive methodology. Just um, so pushing on then, your research, um, you know, it connects a lot of dots, uh, to use <laughs> Ike's phrase, um, with sort of New Age, Aquarian conspiracies, the Cold War, uh, if you could maybe just tell us before we launch into your case studies and and the crux of your research what the historical context here
1: the the cold war is is very much the kind of um, historical context, so you have this explosion of kind of new forms of religion, kind of things which um, would lead to things like Wicca but also you know more diffuse ideas, new age stuff, popular spirituality um following the Second World War, really. So you've got at one side these new religious groups or or groups with a um, seeking to reform society in some way, you know, so alternative kind of communities growing up, uh, Findhorn being a very um, famous uh, example in the, the north of Scotland, um, of people trying to find new ways of living, drawing, often drawing on um, Eastern uh, mysticism um, or... A kind of, uh, post-theosophical writing, so mm. particularly people like Alice Bailey, um, but also on the new UFO lore, which is coming out of the, the US. Now, 1947 is the first, um, sighting of flying saucers, despite attempts, um, by insiders to write that back further in history. Yeah. Um, and that's a, a different conversation to have that we don't have time to do here, but, um, uh, the first, uh, flying saucer sighting in 1947, um, of, you know, these flying discs, flying discs, skipping across the water, like a, like a saucer, um, quickly kind of captures the public imagination. And the Roswell incident or the alleged Roswell incident is only 10 days later. Mm. Um, and, you know, by the early 50s, UFOs are a feature of television, of, um, best-selling books, of, of Hollywood movies. So they caught the imagination quickly and they got took up, uh, taken up by these alternative communities and new religious movements. Um, but at the same time, you've got this Cold War, um, kind of situation emerging. So you've got antagonism between the East and West. You've got a large intelligence community in the US, which is suddenly cast adrift right so there's a large network of people who have really not very much to do but find kind of um, hidden agents you know they're yes. looking for trouble essentially and um, they tend to focus on communists uh, on communists on um, these sort of um, communist agents infiltrators working within mm-hmm. um, the government and within Hollywood and you know the whole McCarthyism thing grows out of that and um, so increasing antagonism um, between the official line and people looking to subvert it, um, uh, you know, five years of fear of being attacked, um, turning in on itself. And, and that kind of, you know, people found that difficult to stop quite clearly. But also there'd been a great rush of new technology coming out. So people mm-hmm. have got this fascination with how technology was both potentially transformative, but potentially destructive as well. We're, we're talking 18 months after Hiroshima and and these also all of these things kind of mix together into this melting pot of religious ideas, concerns about violence and uh, technology fetishization of technology, but also a large intelligence network who are looking for threats within society.
0: Hmm. And there'll be a certain amount of apocalypticism coming with nuclear threat. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the cold war ended. Um, and, and I know we'll come back to this later mm-hmm. probably, but you know, that what impact did that have then on this sort of, on UFOs and
1: by the end of the cold war, let's say, um, about 1990 for ease of argument, there's a number of dates we can yeah. do, but 1990 works roughly. um, the UFO narrative had long become untethered from from the Cold War idea. Initially, most um, sightings of UFOs were identifying what they thought was experimental military craft yes. from w- whichever side. Okay, so both um, uh, Kenneth Arnold's initial sighting and Mac Brazel's um, Roswell, both of those were reported as being military um, hardware, yeah. not extraterrestrial beings. The extraterrestrial narrative had continued all and developed through the 70s and 80s. So by the end of the Cold War, almost everybody thought that UFOs were either extraterrestrial craft or some sort of spiritual craft or often a combination of the two. Um, so it didn't really affect UFOs too much. What it did affect is the way that conspiracy narratives worked because now they were no longer tethered to kind of, um, communism or these kind of specific kind of racial um, conspiracies, you know, the kind of thing that the John Birch Society was, yeah. was preaching in, in the sixties and seventies. Now it became this kind of amorphous threat. It was still within society, but it was much harder to identify mm-hmm. who these, who mm-hmm. the bad guys actually were. And so we get a lot more talk about these kind of amorphous groups like the Illuminati or, yeah. you, know, you know, these kind of, um, hidden threats that were so hidden that most people didn't even know they existed.
0: Absolutely. So connected quite strongly with narratives of globalization, consumerism, etc. Um, and you dealt well with that curveball that I threw you there. Apologies Thanks. for that. Um just powering straight on then, how how does one well how did you go about studying this? Clearly there's a large amount of historical research right. that you've done. Um, but, you know, what else? Participant observation? What, what did you become a
1: conspiracist? What, what did you do? I, I did a mixture of, of, um, historical and ethnographic work of different types. Um, I, there's a lot, most of the chapters in the book are, um, um they, they set out the historical career of the person I'm, I'm, I'm talking about on their, um, and their context. <laughs> um, And then I use ethnographic research. The point of the ethnographic research for me was to step away, actually, from the the individual. Mm. Um, And, you know, what David Icke is writing at one point is one thing, but how those ideas are interacted with and utilized on the ground was what I was hoping to achieve with Mm. uh, ethnography. Um, The problem I had was that most of these groups are... Relatively kind of amorphous in that, you know, they, they're based on the internet and sometimes in magazines, uh, podcasts and these kind of things. So I decided that rather than write this kind of the traditional way of doing ethnography where you go to lots and lots of events and then you write this kind of essentialized version of it, um, was to just be completely honest and write that this is one kind of gathering that I'm going to. But I, um, added to that um by following websites following the discussion boards um following podcasts so i was listening to an enormous amount of podcast <laughs> material and um, f- maybe three four hours a day um uh, you know to follow the development and the interaction with the I- ideas and the way that the mm. networks crossed over and things like that
0: yeah so a lot of complicated mapping there and readers who are interested um the the sort of chapters four to six of your book are really quite in-depth treatments of uh, Whitley Stryber, David Icke, and David Wilcock. Yeah. Um, and those names will maybe come up when we get now to the sort of crux of your argument, mm-hmm. but um, just to flag up that sort of very, very nice sort of first-person ethnographic writing in there is a oh, very you. easy to read, informative <laughs> at the same time. Um, so we're going to have to speed on to, you know, sort of what. What is this map You know, what what are some of the conclusions that you would be able to get out of all of um, One of the key points that you raise is to do with sort of Bourdieu's notion of capital. So right. you, you describe how Bourdieu has uh, notions of um, symbolic capital, and is it is it economic capital? Is it, is it? Yeah. yeah, yeah? That's the crux of it. Yeah, uh, but you, you're adding in a a third third
1: axis yeah um which is epistemic capital i actually took the idea from um from maton um i can't remember the first name right now um the idea being that epistemic capital is not so economic capital is what you have
0: yeah
1: um symbolic capital it has got different names is what you know um epistemic capital is how you know what you know right so um the idea being that the way that these people are achieving uh, are building up capital and therefore you know winning the game of the field is through epistemic capital they they're accessing a broader range of of ways of knowledge than your average person, right? Yeah. So the the reason that they see through the illusion is that they they have um, broader ways of knowing than the ordinary person in the street, okay. and I identified these different kind of uh, epistemic strategies, yeah, uh, that are used,
0: and a couple of them, you know, are. What listeners to be fairly familiar with, then you call them the, the, the scientific and the traditional
1: yeah, and I think those are um, the the major ones that we 're familiar with and the ones that are most appealed to um, and this isn 't just conspiracy theory. this is Absolutely. kind of everybody right this is this is the point um, we will often appeal to scientific um epistemic authority but often in fact we're we're appealing to traditional right so um this is what the fact is because i've been told by somebody else basically um but also things like government systems um royalty traditions like marriage um you know religion. most uh, religion most social rules um are based on uh, tradition rather yeah. than any kind of scientific rationalism and um, i would then add to that um Experience, experiential, is, is of major importance, particularly in these kind of uh, conspiracy world. but for everybody, you know. Yeah, David Hume even, you know, what yeah. do we know? It's what we experience. Right, yeah. I know it's true because I, it happened to me. Mm. Um, and, you know, if you follow, um, any kind of conspiracy um, writer for long enough, you'll see that it's, it's, you know, whistleblowers saying this or, um, here's a person who was abused by, um, s- satanic groups or whatever. It's all eyewitness testimony. Now, of course, eyewitness testimony is notoriously unreliable and it's easy to show how unreliable it is, but it's the cornerstone of these kind of, um, uh, uh, accounts. Not only the sort of, um, uh, whistleblower or the eyewitness, but also in um, experiences the self. Right, so channeling kind of these kind of experiences of of different realities and of different beings, you know, they, they happen to the self. Yeah.
0: And, chan- and channeled um, is another source. Uh, is another one of those epistemic. Indeed. Strands, so that's yeah.
1: it's 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 uh, it's a kind of self authority that comes from somewhere else. So you're yeah. appealing to direct. And contact with a, with a higher being. Now, anybody who's read Craig's Martin, uh, Craig Martin's books, there's lots of good examples of that. I mean, for instance, the Vedas, right? You know, we've got this example where um, the, the caste system is explained by being um, Vishnu's limbs. It's a yeah. famous, uh, famous passage. So channeling is essentially the same. You're saying this, this godlike or extraterrestrial or spiritual being is is telling you what the case is. You don't have to believe me that the world's ending next week, but this uh, deity says it's going to.
0: Yeah. And the final strategy you call sort of synthetic. Synthetic. Is, really? is, is that a sort of, is it a mix of them all?
1: Mix of, you know, what, what's the... Synthetic is the kind of um, joining the dots um, approach uh, where um, uh, taking the, the basis of the sort of new age idea of that everything's connected, right, or, you know, um, wide widely found in the occult kind of milieu, Mm. Um, it says that we can prove things by, you know, one eyewitness testimony over here, you know, an odd symbolic thing over here. So, for instance, Ike's thesis that the governments are um, ruled by reptilian extraterrestrials is proven by channeled messages, um, finding reptilian symbols in a sweep of material from all over the world at different times, you know, completely, um, regardless of of their uh, cultural context, you know, random newspaper um, stories, blog posts by other, you know, just this mishmash of all these different pieces of evidence thrown together. Yeah,
0: and the authority comes from the the artful presentation and synchrony.
1: Right. Yeah. Exactly. Synchronic, it's. It's. Yeah. yeah. Look at these links I've made between all these disparate yeah. things, and they show this truth, you know, underlying yeah. everything.
0: You know, it. It sounds like many an academic presentation that I've seen. Indeed, in sometimes,
1: sense. yeah.
0: So, with these strategies and this notion of epistemic capital in mind, then what we've kind of gone away from the place of UFOs, but. UFOs are serving you use the term as a as a discursive object mm-hmm. between two um, distinct fields
1: right so the idea is we've got this kind of conspiracy theory world that we're maybe familiar with in a certain context you know we tend to associate with the American right and um, with like, UFOs assassinations these kind of this yeah. kind of world and then we've got this um, field of popular millennialism I, I prefer to say that rather than new age, because it includes things like, you know, 2012 and all sorts of other um, popular end of the world scenarios. And that tends to be left wing. It tends to be associated with um, women, particularly, you know, sort of peace and love and holistic ideas and things. Mm. And so I was trying to work out what it was that led people from one to the other or, you know, where, what was the middle ground that overlapped between these two fields that allowed, um, you know, allowed them to come together. And I identified a few things, um, including sort of holistic health, you know, alternative health therapies and, um, ancient alien kind of, you know, alternative archaeology, if you want to call it that, the sort of Graham Mm. Hancock kind of stuff. But I thought that UFOs was by far the strongest link between the two fields. Um, and we've discussed some of the historical reasons for that already, but I think there's an important epistemological reason, which is that UFOs since their first emergence in in the forties have have represented this kind of uncertainty about the boundaries of human knowledge and scientific knowledge particularly. Hmm.
0: And I'll have to direct readers listeners to the the book for for much more on that. I mean, we haven't been able to say much about it now. Um, time is ticking on, so we're going to have to just press on with a few. Mm-hmm. you make some very important points in towards the end of the book about power. Um, you know, we have individuals who get involved in, in this sort of conspiracist milieu. Um, what, what are they doing? Why, why are they doing that? What do they, what do they gain from it? What have you been able to see from your, from your observations?
1: I think there's a lot of different things going on. I mean, in terms of power on an individual level, it's gaining epistemic capital. It's being in the know. And um, for a lot of these people, they're not rich. They're not um, powerful. They don't have much cultural impact directly. But what they can claim is uh, epistemic capital, right? They know More than the average person about what's going on and the truth of the world. What, you know, they've seen the man behind the curtain. Yeah. So that's what they gain is they, they can gain this kind of knowledge, you know, that they're, they're in, they, they see what's going on more than your ordinary person does. And that's exactly the same, um, kind of mechanism that we see going on in religions as well. Not, I mean, maybe not for everybody, but there's a certain, in the West, particularly a certain type of religious person who's, you know, they, they're, they're seekers and then they find, right. And mm. they know what the truth of the world is in a way that other people don't. And that's why they're driven to evangelize, you know. Mm. Um, it Also, there's a sort of element that you, malevolent agents, there's, there's mm. this,
0: Sort of the Odyssey aspect, as well. I think
1: that's a very strong aspect, and that ties to the idea of prophecy. So when prophecy fails, um, Leon Festinger's classic study of of um, a UFO group actually, and, and you know how they responded when um, when prophecy when the the prophesied end of the world failed to happen. And um, I think we can add a new mechanism to um, or a new strategy to avoid mm-hmm. cognitive dissonance, as he puts it which is that we can identify a malevolent counter-agency working against um, the prophecy, okay? Yeah. So although the prophecy describes the way that the world should be and is, but at the same time there's this enemy who's who's fighting against that. So, you know, you've got the the UFO group doing good work on one side, but you've got this vast network of people who don't want the age of peace and love and plenty to come. Yeah. You know, they're working against it exactly the same way as, as, you know, that we see the devil working, uh, you know, mm. or, or any other kind of malevolent agency.
0: So that, br- that's a really nice segue, um, to the questions which always have to be asked in mm. RSP podcasts of, you know, why is all of this relevant to religious studies? You know, you could have been studying, um, conspiracist narratives and ideas without, Ever bringing in the term religion, and indeed, you you don't bring. Uh, in no, term. I don't. No. You have to discuss it in the book, but you you, you sort of discuss it and set it aside. the um, side. But why why do it within a religious studies framework, other than that you were within one anyway?
1: Uh, yeah, well, partly the the obvious answer is that because it ties so closely to these millennial ideas, and I've long been um, interested in the way that the the uh, academy looks at kind of millennial ideas and popular millennial ideas, for instance. Um, it doesn't take long to, to see that new religions, popular religions, these kind of things are, are pretty marginalized in the, in the Academy, you know, mm. um, when they're, when they're looked at at all. And I'm very in, uh, keen to historicize the emergence of these things. There's a, there's a, a traditional way of looking at them as though they just spring from the skull of Athena in the 1960s, you know, as as if from nothing, but I I don't think that's the case. I think the dynamics that produced them whilst culturally specific, it's not this bizarre new outflowing of of religious innovation. I think it's just another example of people bringing in new developments, political developments, technological developments, historical events into a framework that helps them conceptualize the world. Mm. And that's, you know, and this is kind of probably where our work crosses over. I don't think we need to, we need to, um, put this aside as religion and this is conspiracy theories. Rather these, these ideas and these narratives are all entangled in people's lives. Yeah. And the Academy ignores these at our peril, but at the same time, it's this issue of power who decides what we can um, call religion and what we can legitimately study in the Academy. And it it is the case that these ideas are still, I I get a lot of criticism and a lot of resistance to these kind of ideas being taken seriously in the context of, you know, a a proper university with, you know, we've got, we, we train ministers.
0: Yeah. So yeah, on, on the one hand, there's, there's kind of that, um, there's an element of saying, well, here's a group of understudied phenomena which should be studied. Um, and sort of elevating them in that sense, but there's also a deconstructivist element. Um, you you have some reflections at the end of the book about you know maybe reformulating the whole academic study of religion in a way that would allow incorporation of a much broader um, set of phenomena.
1: Yeah, I sort of suggest um, that we start from the point of view of of looking at the systems of of you know how these different epistemological approaches uh, interact. So rather than legitimizing certain narratives which ascribe non-verifiable agencies in the world as worthy of study and of worthy of taking seriously and other ones as not. Um, Let's look at all of these on an equal footing. We don't have to decide whether, you know, does it really make much difference whether you know Hinduism is a religion or New Age is a religion. Let's get past that and look at how all of these different structures of understanding the world, of gaining knowledge of the world how they interact Hmm. Um, and that's the kind of approach I would um, I would like to to move into but um, it might be a while before I get there
0: Exactly. On a final note then, um, might be a while before you get there. I mean what's What's next for you in this area? And if you if you care to make some predictions that admittedly might fail,
1: um, but about the the future of this area of study. At the moment it's still a very sort of nascent subfield. Um, the Nova Religio issue I did and my monograph I think are helping to drive that forward. And at the moment I'm working on um, handbook of religion and conspiracy for Brill which I'm co-editing with um, Asperger and Direndal and Egil Esprim um, and that should be out early next year hopefully and that's going to be you know, a large in-depth volume that goes in you know, really covers the situation across the world a lot of different case studies looking at it from different theoretical perspectives that I couldn't bring in you know like psychological and these mm-hmm. kind of these different ways of looking at it. As for me, I don't know. I've got a few different books. I'm finding it very hard to get funding in this area because uh, I think the conspiracy of the malevolent um, academia, <laughs> right? Yeah. They're conspiring against me. Um, not many people are interested in covering this in religious studies departments because it's not religion. And most of the people who are wanting to fund it from a political point of view are looking to avoid, are looking to counter extremism. Yes. And so my work is a bit too um, apologetic for them. So who knows i don't know there's i've got a few different ideas but we'll see what pans out it might be something that comes out as less of an academic project and more of a um sort of semi-popular book Um, but we'll see what happens
0: well we look forward to that um and so listeners do check out the book do check out um david's website which is uh, is davidgrobertson.wordpress.com correct yes um where you'll find updates on all of this and um interesting links from time to time to, to where conspiracism comes up in other research and in the media. Um, and it's been a pleasure to have you on the Religious Studies Project. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Well, that was fun. Yeah. Yes, yeah, fun. Yeah. I'm looking forward to, um, you know, hearing the sort of applause that will be coming from our our, our audience for that interview. It was, a, it was a quite fun experience recording that. It was in this same room about... Three or four weeks ago, indeed. Um,
1: I'm looking forward to the response mm. this week.
0: Yeah, you know, it's going to be one of the one of the first bits of kind of public feedback you'll have
1: had on the book. I guess I've had one review and two interviews so far. Yeah. Well, this is the third of so three interviews, right?
0: Yeah. Well, obviously, this
1: is the best one, of course. This is the most in depth and the most uh, theoretical. Yes, yeah. certainly. And this is the problem with doing controversial work is that people want to talk about the controversies not the uh, mm. and not the theoretical aspects mm. of it but never mind
0: Yeah, and I can assure people that if they do go to the book they'll get all the uh, juicy controversies in there as well it was a really nice experience as well to to spend a few days in your company whilst reading your book um, it's always nice when you're doing that preparing for an interview indeed um, yeah so thanks for listening to that everyone um Next week, um, we've got a couple of good friends of mine on the podcast. We've got Dusty Hosling, um, who is at UCSB, and he's speaking to one of their newest uh, professors. Is Joe Blanco, and I met Joe in Frankfurt about a year and a half ago, um, and they're talking um, largely around... There, there's a, an article that Joe had in the Journal for the Scientific Study of Religion, on the political advantages of a polysemous secular, so the the idea that the term secular has multiple interpretations and people can use it in um, discourse but because it's so slippery and because their audience can hear what they want to hear in the term, it it has political advantages Um, when you're using that that term, you can use it to sort of encode um, ideology and, and sort of get your own point
1: across without people realising it so it's going to be an excellent interview yeah very interesting we make a nice counterpoint to the interviews we've done on the construction of the term religion uh, yeah so, so on and so forth um tim fitzgerald and people like that excellent So, uh, as always, we're sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religion and the North American Association for the Study of Religion. And if you've been getting our emails, uh, you'll see that our MailChimp service is provided by the Australian Association for the Study of Religion. And if you aren't getting those emails, maybe you should. Maybe you should. If Um. you don't want to receive emails, although it's, for some people, that's the handiest way to do it, there are other ways to get the programme, of course. You can subscribe via RSS, but you can also uh, subscribe using our Facebook page you can follow us on Twitter you can follow us on Google Plus you can find the podcast on iTunes on YouTube and that's probably it but that's quite a lot don't forget though if you do use the show don't forget to use our Amazon affiliate links that's amazon.com.uk and .ca if you're in uh, Europe well Britain North America in general, including Canada, um, they really help us out a lot. We get um, basically it forces Amazon to give a little bit of the money they make from anything that you buy, not only products featured on the program, but anything. Um, it makes them give a bit of their profit to us to support, uh, you know, this independent, free at the point of use service. We're
0: so generous, aren't we? Yeah, I, I'm done for today, I think. Should we just just say thanks for listening? Nah.